or your Bible app handy. Uh, one of those blue Bibles under the chair in front of you, it's going to be page 409. Well, we've had quite the ride through Nehemiah. We've been in this wonderful book since uh, early August, and we did take a few breaks. We had a few special speakers. We had uh, a special sermon like for our annual meeting, but I've really enjoyed the last couple of months in the book of Nehemiah. I know for my own heart and life, I've been amazed at how there's been things in this book that are exactly what I needed, and I've been praying the same thing for you. Uh, so I pray that you've been blessed uh, through this time as well. Well, as you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, Melanie and I served with teenagers in youth ministry as, uh, as I was an associate pastor for over eight years. And then during my five years in seminary, we worked with uh, children every Sunday during seminary. And because of this time span, some of those uh, youth that we worked with during that time are now in their early 30s. And one of the things that we've seen over the years is that there are many of those uh, young men and women who, are, who were teenagers then who are now walking with Christ. There's some who are serving as missionaries. There's some who are Christian school teachers. There's, there's some who are, are married to a Christian spouse and who are walking with the Lord today and serving in their local church, and that's really exciting to see. One of the things that has been most heartbreaking is to see how many there have been who are not walking with the Lord. And, and I guess part of it is because it was, it's kind of a surprise because it, it seemed like they really loved Jesus and it seemed like they wanted to serve him and they would be involved in Bible studies and they would even go on mission trips. But often, as uh, we will talk to one of the teens that we used to work with, we'll hear something or we'll see on social media that they're not walking with the Lord today and that they're making decisions in the 20 in their 20s that will impact the rest of their lives well one of the things that i've noticed over the years as i've watched this trend now for well over a decade is that those who are walking with the lord today are those who most often remember the gospel and what do i mean by that what i mean is that some have continued to be involved in a local church through all those years but others have walked away from the Lord for a while and then returned. And what we've noticed is that there's always a remembrance of the gospel. There's a remembrance of Jesus dying for them and rising from the dead that not only saves them, but that helps them to continue in their faith. And, and now that I've been a full-time pastor for almost 12 years, I could really say the same thing about many adults that I've known as well, that uh, I have seen walk away from the Lord, and yet those who've come back or those who continue to walk with the Lord are the ones who always remind themselves of the truths of the gospel. And so there's three principles that I want you to see in Nehemiah chapter 13 to help you persevere in your walk with God. The first that we're going to look at is to make plans to follow Jesus. The second is to be open to confrontation as a tool from God. And then the third is remember the gospel. So let's look at the first one, and they'll be up there one at a time if you're taking any notes. The first is make plans to follow Jesus. Now in Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, we saw that the people made a public commitment to follow God, to obey his commands. They basically made a covenant with God to keep the covenant that they had already made with him. 
Because what they did is remember in Nehemiah chapter 9, they rehearsed their history as a nation. They saw over 1,000 years of their history as God's people. They saw that they had failed over and over and over, and they were in the middle of that again. So they threw themselves on God's mercy, and they made a commitment to keep their covenant with God. Well, the reason that this happened is if you turn a little bit back in your Bibles and in chapter 8, just to remind you, the, the word of God came back to them. They read the word. Then because of that, in chapter 9, there was this full-scale confession as a nation. And then in chapter 10, they made this recommitment to follow God. And specifically, they made three general promises in chapter 10. So we're, we're back to chapter 10 because it's going to tie into chapter 13. These three general promises they had made in chapter 10 were to not marry men or women who are not believers. The second was to obey God's rules on the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath, in other words. And the third was to give so that the temple could be kept in good repair so that, and also so that the temple could have the priest and the singers needed to be able to do the work in the temple and to continue their work as part of the worship. Well, then, if you're flipping through Nehemiah, we get to chapter 12. And last week, near the end of chapter 12, verse 43, we saw this. They had this great celebration as the wall was rededicated. And then in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43, it says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So we all know the end of the story, right? Nehemiah, as cupbearer, uh, went back to Susa, the capital of Persia, and the people lived happily ever after. Well, the first part of that sentence is true. Nehemiah does go back to Susa. He remains as governor for, it seems, about 12 years, actually. He may have communicated with the king during that time or even had a quick trip back, but he stayed and and led the people along with Ezra for about 12 years. But then we find out in Nehemiah chapter 13 today, verse 6, if you want to just take a look now, we find out that Nehemiah went back, and the people did not live happily ever after. In fact, they actually failed on all three of these big promises, these big picture promises they had made in chapter 10. And we're specifically going to see that in chapter 13 today. But what I want you to take a quick look at before we move on to chapter 13 is that when I, when I got to chapter 10 a couple of Sundays ago, I made sure that we understood that we need Christ. And I think that's one of the big things that we see in Nehemiah. Today, you're going to see at the end of the book, it doesn't end on a really happy note. It ends on a, on a struggle sort of note. The people have seen revival come, but then they've turned away from God yet again, and you wonder what's going to happen. And what God's doing is he's setting up his people. He's setting us up to see that we need Christ. But I also don't want you to walk away with the idea from chapter 10 that just because they fail to keep their promises to God from chapter 10, we see that in chapter 13, it doesn't mean that it's bad to make a commitment to follow God. And I'm talking about as a believer, once you know Christ, it can sometimes be a good thing to have a, a special circumstance or a special time where you say, you know what, I'm making a commitment 
to do such and such a thing. And I believe God wants me to do this and then to even share it with others. That can be a good thing. Think about the epistles, for example. What do we see in the epistles? We see Jesus has done this. This is the gospel. This is what we need to believe to be saved. So because of that, we need to live this way. So we see this idea that because of Christ, because of the gospel, we need to live it out. And that can involve making a commitment. In fact, you might even need to make a public commitment, a public promise, you could say, like this, that, that we do on this side of the cross is baptism. So what, I'm, what I don't want you to walk away from with Nehemiah chapter 10 and realizing in chapter 13 that they fail to say, well, it's bad to make commitments to God then. No, that can be a good thing. And in fact, we do that in particular with baptism, where somebody gets up in front of the whole church and says, I've decided to follow Jesus, and I want to follow him the rest of my life. There may be other things in your life where you've realized, I, as I've read the word, I failed in this, I need to make a change in my life, and I'm going to do this now. And you might share that with some people in your Bible study or your family or some of your closer friends who are believers, whether it's somewhere else or, or a church, so that you can have prayer, so you can have accountability and help. I want you to think about a commitment that you've made to God that you haven't followed through on. Is there a, a commitment as a Christian, I'm not talking about to be saved, but I'm talking about as a Christian, as someone who already believes in Jesus, you're not doing this to save yourself because you know only Jesus can do that, but you've made a commitment to God to do something and you haven't followed through on it. I want you to think about that and give that to the Lord today. It might be something simple like reading your Bible every day. It might be something like committing to being more involved at church. And I want you to see that one way that you can persevere in your walk with God, remember we're talking about this side of the cross, we'll come back to that at the end, remembering the gospel, Christ gives us the power to follow him. So I want you to think about what is a commitment that God has called me to make that I have let the ball drop on. Maybe I've slacked off on it. Let me give you an example of something that I've slacked off on, and I hope that this will help you as you think about things in your life that you have slacked off on. We're in this together. We're, we're trying to grow in our walk with Christ together. I'm assuming that I'm not the only one who struggles with this sometimes. So this fall, I was reading a book on church revitalization, and there was a guide in this book for 40 days of prayer for church revitalization, and, and I printed it off, and it really resonated with me, and I was really excited about it, so I shared it with Jerry and asked him to pray through it uh, with me as well, and I continued to pray for you guys. I continued to pray general prayers for you. I continued to pray for specific prayer requests that you asked for, but I stopped praying the 40 days of prayer for church revitalization. They were things that I believed that God wanted me to pray for our church over a period of 40 days, and I failed. I stopped doing it. So I'm going to pick it up tonight, and I want you to ask me, how's that prayer for church revitalization going, Pastor Tim? And I'm going to ask back to you, how are your prayers? <laughs> and that's what we see next. So first, we need to plan. We need to make plans to follow Jesus. That's okay. I think the Bible actually encourages us to do that. But next, we need to be open to confrontation as a tool from God. 
We need to be open to confrontation as a tool from God. And today is one of those sermons where I was tempted to split chapter 13 into two chapters. There's so much here. So I'm going to let you bring it home, study it more on your own. We're going to get some highlights, and we're going to concentrate on chapter 13 under number two here. Be open to confrontation as a tool from God. Here's what I want you to think about. When you are convicted of your sin, when you see something that you've failed God in, or whether it's sin or whether it's a commitment you made to him that you have let uh, fall, that you've slacked on, I want you to to think about that when God uses somebody to confront you in that. I want you to think of that as a tool of God's mercy and love for you. He loves you so much that he's not going to let you go. He's not going to be let you be that sheep that wanders off. He's bringing you back. And so if you won't be confronted, you're refusing God's love. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Nehemiah chapter 13, it says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why? Verse 2, For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Don't you love that? Verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So we find out again, like I said, if you you turn to verse 6 in chapter 13, what you can see is that there's been a big fast forward here. You, You just continue to read and you might automatically think that the beginning of chapter 13 is where we left off with the celebration at the wall. But you get to verse 6, and what you see is Nehemiah says, while this was taking place, I was not in the city. He had already gone back, and Nehemiah was back there, some scholars think, for about four years. Others think about 13 years. Uh, The best that I can figure out is uh, those who say about nine years because of the timing of King Artaxerxes' reign. So we'll just say Nehemiah was there for about nine years back in Susa, away from Jerusalem. And when he comes back, things are an absolute mess. The, the first thing we notice, we see this beginning of chapter 13. Notice what they read in the book of Moses. It says that Ammonites and Moabites were not supposed to be part of the assembly. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you're wondering what it's talking about, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And what had happened is Israel had tried to pass through the territory of the Ammonites and Moabites, and they told them, look, we're just trying to pass through. We will pay you for our food and water, and they refused. They said, no way. We don't care who your God is. You're not going to pass through. We're not giving you any stinking food or water, even if you pay us for it. And so not only that, they hired a prophet who they perceived as a prophet of their God, of Yahweh, and his name was Balaam. You remember him? They said, we're going to pay you money and you curse Israel. Well, as you saw in Nehemiah, Nehemiah reminds us that God actually turned that curse into a blessing. God wasn't going to let a false prophet curse his people that he had chosen to bless. But Balaam did do something else that really messed things up. And you can see this if you look at it, Deuteronomy 23. What he did is he said, look, God is stopping my curses And God is blessing the people instead. So here's what you need to do. You need to just slowly intermarry with them. 
You need to just slowly make it so that uh, you'll be connected by families, and then they will begin to worship our gods, little g's, and they will stop to worship the true God. Now, I want to make sure you understand God had given allowances for people of other nations to become part of the nation of Israel. Think about this. This is a really great example. Ruth, King David's great-grandma, who would be in the line of the Messiah, Jesus, guess where she was from? She was from Moab. So God had always allowed people who wanted to leave their gods and leave their nation to become part of God's people through the nation of Israel. But go ahead and take a quick look at verses 23 to 27 in chapter 13, and you'll see Nehemiah dealing with this issue. Take a look down at verse 23 to 27. I'll just let your eyes scan over that. We're going to come back to it. And Nehemiah is really mad as he's dealing with this in verses 23 to 27. And you might ask the question, well, he's not mad because they're uh, mixed race marriages, right? No way. Don't ever let anybody ever tell you that. That's a, a false teaching. He's mad because of what Paul would later talk about in 1 Corinthians, that believers are not to marry unbelievers. If you look at verse 24, you get an idea of this. You get a picture of this. You'll see that their children did not even speak the language of Israel. This is not a fear of foreigners. Uh, it's not a fear of different languages. Remember, at that time, this is how the people studied the Bible. This is how they worshipped. This was a unique time in Israel's uh, history as God's people. Now, as the church, it's made up of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's not tied to a nationality, but at this time it was tied to the nation of Israel and somebody had to leave their gods like Ruth did. And she actually said that at one point in Ruth, if they were going to come and worship the true God. And so if you look at verse 24, what you see here is what he's so upset about is they're going against God's law in the sense of what we would say on this side of the cross is marrying unbelievers. And what you see here is their children, because of that, are not being raised to know the true God. This is, he talks about this in verses 23 to 27. He says, didn't Solomon do this? You know, do you, do you see what he's saying? Do you think you're wiser than Solomon? Who was Solomon? The wisest man on earth. He says, look, if the wisest man on earth couldn't pull this off, why do you think you can pull it off? What's happening is it's kind of like we see this with Solomon. He says, oh, sweetheart, you want to you wanna go make a sacrifice to, to those gods, even though you know I believe they're fake gods and they're just idols? Well, fine. I want you to be happy. You know, you're, you're a wonderful wife. Let me build you a temple. And I won't go be part of that worship, but, but you can go sacrifice to that idol. Well, that's what we saw Solomon doing in Nehemiah brings that up. And so just as a, a brief aside here, for all who are single, and I want all the kids and teenagers in the room to pay attention, listen up as well, who you marry matters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked. The Bible is clear. Yes, that's not only talking about marrying unbelievers, but the Bible is clear that believers are only to marry other believers in Jesus. That means you shouldn't be dating them either. That means if you're committed to Jesus, you may have to look in the eyes of a beautiful young girl 
You may have to look in the eyes of a handsome young man and say, you know, I like spending time with you. I like you as a person. I think you're pretty good looking. But I'm committed to Jesus. And if you're not committed to him, I have to break your heart. And my heart too, but we can't continue on like this. Let me give you an example. When I was a, a freshman in college, I had an upper class uh, friend who went to church most Sunday mornings, and she was involved in one of the on-campus Bible studies now and then, and uh, we knew each other from marching band. And I knew that she was dating an unbeliever, even though she uh, was a committed Christian. She made it clear that she was a believer. And uh, a couple of years after that, she graduated, they got married. I was a senior in college, and I got a call from her one night. She said, Tim, would you a ride to church? You know, she still had friends on campus, and she knew that we would see each other at church, and she wanted to worship together uh, that Sunday morning. She said, would you give me a ride to church? I said, sure. And then she started talking to me. I could hear there was a lot of commotion in the background. You have to remember this is before cell phones had really taken off individually. There were a few cell phones on campus, but most people didn't have them yet. So she's calling me, it turns out. I said, where are you? And she said, well, I'm calling you from the payphone in the bar because my husband wanted to come to the bar. And then she started crying. And she said, Tim, I, I know you might be a pastor someday. I'm, I'm not making this up. This is a friend of mine who I knew and cared about, and this really happened. She, she said, at, in tears, she said, if you ever get the chance to tell people to be careful with who they marry, will you please remind them of that? She said, I love my husband, and I'm committed to him. She said, here I am in this bar, and tomorrow morning he's going to sleep off his hangover, and I'm going to go to church and worship. She said, the deepest part of our lives, our spiritual life, is something we don't share. She said, warn other people. Now, God gives right once once we make that decision and we're married he tells us to keep that commitment and he makes that clear in the same book of the bible that talks about uh, being careful who we marry he tells us that once we're married we keep that commitment to his glory and god might even use us bring salvation to that person but before we get married he tells us we need to be really really careful well back to nehemiah chapter 13 Verse 4, the reason that Nehemiah 13 starts by explaining this prohibition of the Ammonites being in the temple is because when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem after being gone for maybe nine years, guess what? Sorry, guys, let me fix that. Try to. There's an Ammonite living in the temple. Do, do you remember Tobiah? Do you remember this guy in the book of Nehemiah? This is the same Tobiah who was friends with Sambalot who tried everything he could find, everything in the books and everything not in the books, to try to stop God's people from rebuilding the wall and from rebuilding Jerusalem. This is the same Tobiah who came with Sambalot with an army and threatened to kill them if they didn't stop building the wall. This is the same Tobiah who said that a fox couldn't climb up on that wall without knocking it over. And now he's living inside those walls and not just inside those walls. He's inside the temple and he's in the storerooms that were needed to carry on the worship in the temple. So what they've done is they've gotten rid of the supplies for the sacrifices and for the 
the, the worship, and they've given Tobiah an apartment in the temple. So what does Nehemiah do? Take a look at verse 6. This is the end of verse 6. It says, After some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. By the way, Eliashib is the high priest. And by the way, we find out in another part of the chapter that he's also now related to Sanballat through marriage. His grandson has married into uh, this other uh, line of unbelieving people. Uh, and so now both of these major players, these major enemies of God that we met earlier in the book of Nehemiah are now somehow related to the high priest. And he's basically giving them favors now because of those marriages. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8, Tobiah says, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I love this. Nehemiah returns to the temple. Remember, they brought the temple worship back and he finds Tobiah living in the temple. And he doesn't just say, that's okay. God loves you. He throws the scoundrel out. Do you see that? And he's throwing his furniture out. You need to get this in your mind. And then he gets out the Lysol. I mean, yes, purifying was a little different, but in our minds, he gets out the Lysol and he's spraying it out. And he says, you know, those things that are used for the sacrifices, get them back in here right now. We are going to worship the Lord. The temple is no place for someone who's an avowed enemy of God. This is something that really happened. I, I believe in the literal interpretation of scripture, but I want you to think about how this event that really happened is a, is a picture of Israel's spiritual condition at that time. Tobiah is living in the temple, in the place of worship. And I want to ask you, is this what your spiritual life is like? If it is, we're getting to the last point that you're going to need. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. I'll try to, you're just going to switch to the other mic. Okay, I'll just take this off so it'll stop doing that. Let's switch to the other mic. Well, I hope that Nehemiah reminds you of somebody who's going to come about 500 years later. Do you remember Jesus when he went into the temple? He went into the place of worship and, and things were uh, being abused the way the worship was supposed to happen. And, and you get this reminder of Jesus flipping over the tables and purifying the temple, cleaning it out because it was the house of God where he was to be worshiped. Well, more happens. You get on to uh, verses 15 to 22, and we see that the people have completely disregarded the Sabbath. So Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and he not only finds God's enemies living in the temple, he finds that there's been this slow erosion where they have allowed the merchants to come in on the Sabbath, and they've actually encouraged them to sell to them on the Sabbath. And what does he do? You see this in verse 21. He tells them, if you come back on the Sabbath, I will give it to you. If you don't believe me, take a look at verse 21. He, that's what he says in Hebrew, basically. I'm going to lay my hands on you. 
And it wasn't to give them a pat on the back. He's going to get them out of the city. Take a look at verse 25. This is where he really flies off the handle. This is the, the verse that everyone who reads Nehemiah, they say, what in the world is going on here? Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Well, these punishments are hard for us to understand, but remember, we're talking about a theocracy here. We're not talking about the church under the new covenant. We're not talking about a democracy, which we are used to living in. This is the nation. The people of God are living together as a nation, and there are certain punishments. It would be like having a civil punishment brought on, but because of their disobedience against God, because it's a theocracy. Also, it's, you need to understand, first of all, you see Nehemiah cursing them. It's not like he's running around uh, yelling expletives at, at those who are living in this sin. What he's doing is, remember the covenant they made? The covenant meant there were blessings if they obeyed, but there were curses if they disobeyed. So what he's doing is he's calling down curses from God, curses that they had said already, curses that were promised in the covenant if they turned away from God. Do you see what he's doing? He's confronting them. He's not afraid to confront them in their sin. The other thing, you get to this pulling out hair and, and beating these guys, and you think, what in the world is going on? And the best that I can figure out is I don't think we have license to believe that just like he's not walking around uh, just cursing at people, but he's calling down God's curses as they've broken the covenant, it seems like he's doing a punishment that was part of, uh, you know, carried out through the government. It's not like he just walked around beating people up. There were beatings that, that happened as part of the disobedience against God's law. We see that in the law. It seems that he was probably pulling out some hairs of their beards. It was kind of a shaming ritual. We see in other places in scripture where uh, pulling out a man's beard uh, was a way to dishonor him. You'd say the same thing today, really. And so what I want you to see is that Nehemiah was not afraid to confront sin. And I'm not saying we should physically punish people in the new covenant, but are you open to confrontation as a tool of God in your life? Can your wife approach you if there's sin in your life? Have you opened yourself up enough to allow her to approach you if she sees something in your life that she's worried about? What about your husband? Can he do that? What about your friends? What about your church members? What about your pastor? Do you have a tender enough heart to say, maybe I need somebody else speaking into my life, somebody who sees this thing in my life where I'm not following Jesus and they love me enough to come to me. I, I need to somehow listen to that. Mark Ackerman was a college football player and he had grown up in church, but he was walking away from God rather than with him. And one of his teammates was a 280-pound defensive lineman who had recently been radically converted and was following Jesus now. The lineman's name was Big Warren Choice. And he had been known all over campus for his rough lifestyle. And in fact, on, on convocation day when school began, he had gotten up in front of Big Warren and gotten up in front of the whole student body and said, I am now following Christ, and I want you to watch. There's going to be a change in my life because I'm following 
Jesus now. And Mark Ackerman had actually made fun of him because he knew Warren would just blow it. Well, one night the football team was playing cards together and Warren began to talk with Mark about where his life was going and how it would be for him when he stood before God. And Mark said, I'm not a bad guy. Come on, get off my back. Leave me alone, Warren. And then Warren said to Mark, Ackerman, you're going to straight to hell and you're going to be the first one in line and you know it. Well, that night he went home and he couldn't fall asleep because he knew it was true. He knew the gospel. He knew what it meant to follow Jesus. He knew that he wasn't doing it. And he gave his heart to Christ that night. And today, both Mark Ackerman and Big Warren are in ministry today. Do you see confrontation as a tool from God? And then lastly, just for a moment, we're going to spend the next five Sundays looking at this. I want to remind you to remember the gospel Remember the gospel. God let the book of Nehemiah in the way it did with this tension because people need to feel their need for a savior. We need to read this and say, this is sad. This is basically how the Old Testament history ends. And we need to feel that sadness. We need to feel that tension because Jesus is coming. That's the next thing that happens in redemptive history here is 450 or so years later, Jesus will be born and the Savior will come and those skies will break open with angels rejoicing. Why? Because he's come to save his people from their sins. But even though I believe God has Nehemiah 13 in this way because he wants to point us ahead to Jesus, I also want to remind us then on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus takes care of the penalty of our sin. We know that if we trust in him only for salvation, if we believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, we know that we are saved. We know that penalty has been taken care of. We know that Jesus takes care of the power of sin. We know that he can give us the power to overcome sin because the Holy Spirit is living in us now. But we also know that until heaven... We are in the presence of sin. And so we struggle, and that's part of the growth of the Christian life. That's what we call sanctification, growing in our walk with Jesus. And so as long as we're in this body, until we get to heaven, sometimes we wonder, will I do any better than the people of Nehemiah's day? And so I want to ask you, where will your relationship with Jesus be, say, nine years from now? Nehemiah was gone for nine years, and this is what he finds. Where will your relationship with God be nine years from now? You know, I taught Nehemiah to junior campers uh, this summer, and when I said this uh, in chapel, there was a little third-grade girl. I said, instead of saying, where will uh, you be in your walk with God nine years from now, I made the mistake of saying, where will you be nine years from now? And she jumped up. She said, Paris! And I lost it. <laughs> it was hilarious. But I'm asking, where will you be in your relationship with God nine years from now? And I can give you the answer to that. It mostly depends on how much will you remember the gospel? How much will you remember the gospel? Romans 7, 
the end of Romans 7 deals with this idea of struggling on our way to heaven in this pilgrimage. The Apostle Paul, I believe he's speaking here as a believer, and he's struggling at the end of Romans 7, and he's talking about how I have these things I want to do to follow Jesus, but I don't do it. He says, I'm a wretched person. And then he says, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And as you read it, the idea you get is he says, I'm still in my flesh and I have these things I want to do to follow Jesus, but I don't do it. I'm, I'm struggling. And then verse 25, Romans 7, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He's still struggling. And then the next verse, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you remember the gospel, then the cross has a better word for you. On this side of the cross, Hebrews says it's a better covenant. This is the new covenant. Jesus is the Savior. You can know, even as you struggle to follow him in this life, that you're going to heaven. That's what... Jesus promises, and I'm struck by Nehemiah's prayer. Take a look at the very last verse, Nehemiah chapter 13. He says, remember me, oh my God, for good. He says this multiple times throughout the book. But what strikes me is that he says this multiple times in chapter 13. And I almost get a sense where Nehemiah might be struggling a little bit with his faith as he sees what has played out over the years. And he's begging God to remember him. And I want to just tell you, we have a better word because of the cross. Romans 8, the same book, verse 28, if you're trusting in Jesus, says we know, we don't have to wonder if God will do good to us or not. If you know Christ, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what we're going to do as we close, and I'm very sorry, worship team, uh, I, I'm going to have to just go straight to communion. So we'll sing that song maybe next week. But as we go to communion, as we go to the Lord's Supper, I want to call us to remember the gospel. Remember Jesus. That is what will give us the perseverance that we need as we follow him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for these great promises that you give to us. We praise you for the promises of the gospel. We are so excited to spend the next five Sundays looking at them. The promise of heaven, the glory of knowing Jesus, of knowing today that we are going to heaven, not because of the good we've done, but because of the good that Jesus has done. Lord, would you put it in our hearts to believe this if we don't believe this gospel? Would you help someone here today who may not know you as Savior to turn to you to put all of their good works aside and to trust in the good work of Jesus and what he alone has done, to forgive them as they go to Jesus for salvation? Lord, for those of us who are trusting in you today, help us to not worry about the future and whether or not we'll follow you. Help us to focus on today, walking with you today, and to remember the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.